0: God's Word. Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 13 in your Red Pew Bibles. It's 1079. 1079 in your Red Pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, it should be a Red Pew Bible that looks like this right here somewhere nearby. If you want to hunt one of those up and turn to page 10. 79 again 1st Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 13 we like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached
1: therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming And so your faith and hope are in God.
0: The word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Great job. Um, So I have a new stool this morning that is guaranteed not to squeak. So we're going to put it to the test. I don't know if that drives anybody else crazy, but Michael Hunter couldn't take it anymore last week. So he said, I'm going to get you a new stool. No squeak. Good job, Michael. I like it. Hey, I also wanted to mention before we dive in here, over on the table over there, right as you walk in to the right, there are two boxes, and there's little sheets like this. One is for, it's a little bit simpler for younger kids, one's for uh, older kids here, and it's just a way to take notes and guide you and help you get engaged as we walk through the passage in God's Word. There's some crayons and things over there, so... You guys can feel free to walk over there and grab any of those things that you would need for this time. We, here at Grace Community, we love having children in the service. They are not a distraction. They are part of God's family and the body of Christ. And they are learning, even as they sit and drive their parents crazy, they are learning how to worship God. And that is very valuable to us here. So let me pray for us as we come to our passage. Father, we... <clears throat> we want to pause and still our hearts as we move now in our time where we are giving our attention to your powerful word. Lord, that you have said by your word you have made the world and it is by your, wor- your word that you make us new, that you make new creation. And so, Father, we pray now, would you come And draw near through the power of your word and the presence of your spirit. And speak into our hearts that we would see Jesus. That we would be moved to worship. And that we would be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's start off with a question for the kids here. Kids, if you're ready to go. Have you ever been in a situation or a place in life where you felt like you didn't fit in? Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, So, thank you for those honest hands that are going up. You know, the reality is we all, yeah, Troy even got his hand up back there. Yes, it's not just us kids, it's us adults too. It's a really challenging thing in life in that there is, really this is a human experience that we're in places in life where you feel like you don't fit in or you feel the fear of not fitting in. And sometimes kids in school, this can be enormous, right? Sometimes the pressure to fit in can be so overwhelming. So sometimes we find ourselves doing things or acting in ways that are really not us. But we do it because we want to fit in. Because we want to be a part. Because it's afraid to not, we're afraid to not fit in. This was very much so much of my experience growing up. I mean in school, as I was coming up through school, I had this deep sense that like I don't fit in. And so I was always working so hard, always trying to figure out what do I need to do to belong to the right crowd. And they just tended to dominate what how I acted, how I talked, how I dressed, all of those kind of things. You know, if I'm honest, I find that still a lot in my life as an adult. I find myself in so many situations where I'm not myself, or maybe I don't say something that should be said, or I'm pulling back on maybe how I should enter into a situation because I don't want to be rejected. I want to fit in. I don't want to seem different in any way. So why do I share this? Why do we start with this? Well, we're in a series in the book of 1 Peter that we're doing this fall, and the series is called Living as Exiles. And so Peter is writing to the first century believers, but it's really, we're in a very similar situation where he's writing and he's saying, listen, you need to understand you are exiles in this world. To be an exile is to be someone who is not at home. You're like a foreigner or an alien. And Peter is trying to say, you know, you're in this world and you're experiencing, his audience here, they're experiencing persecution and hardship and difficulty. And he's saying, you need to know this world is not your home. And so Walking and living with that identity that I belong to another world is absolutely crucial for how you live now. And one of the things that Peter really emphasizes in here is that it is their being different in the world that is at the heart of their calling. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stick out like a sore thumb in the world. And that is your calling. So what we see in our passage today is we see that calling to be different now sometimes in the church this is a real challenge especially in the American culture I think in many ways we see the church more and more just looking like the culture around us and so sometimes as believers sometimes even in our lives we need to ask the question am I different do people around me in the different places that God calls me in school as I'm in the classroom as I'm in the workplace as I'm out, you know, on the ball field. Am I different? Do people know there's something different about me? Does it make sense that this world is not my home? Because sometimes the temptation as believers just to fit in can overwhelm the calling that we have in the world. So here's what we're going to see in our passage today. Knowing the grace of God for us in Christ gives us the motivation and courage to stick out in the world and be different. So our note taker's hill, I'll I'll repeat that for you, okay? Knowing the grace of God for us in Christ gives us the motivation and courage to stick out in the world and be different. So let's jump into our passage. We're looking here, starting, we're working our way through the book. We're on verse 13 as we start this passage here. And kids, I got a question for you here. What is the first word in the passage here? Maybe we got to call adult help in here. What's the first word? Therefore, right? So anytime you see a therefore, what should you ask? What is the therefore, therefore? Yeah, thanks. Humor me a little bit, right? It's a connecting conjunction. It's a connecting word. It tells you, wait a minute. What Peter's about to say is built on top of what he's been talking about before. There is a connection here. Now, what has he been talking about before? Just remind you real quick, the gospel. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. He's been rooting us in our identity in Christ. And he's been talking about your joy comes from your resting in and deeply knowing the love and rescue of grace and the grace of God for you in Christ. Here's who you are. Here is what God has done. And now as he's going to move into actually talking about how we should now live, he wants us to know those are inseparably connected. A theologian named Herman Ritterboss once said, the imperative always flows from the indicative. What the heck is Herman talking about there? Well, we got to get in English class for a minute. What is an imperative? It is a mood of verb that it means to command. It's something you should do. And scripture gives us a lot of commands. A lot of instructions of how we should live in life. But now, what is an uh, an indicative? An indicative is a statement of fact. This is already true. This has already happened to you. This is a, a true and living reality for you. And so Herman is saying, the imperative, what we should do always in Scripture, flows from the indicative of what God has already done and accomplished for us in Christ. That is the logic of the gospel, and we talk about that constantly. But you need to see how the logic works in Scripture. You see it throughout in Peter. He gives a command and almost immediately goes back to the gospel. And we might say, wait a minute, I already know that. Peter, tell me what I'm supposed to do. What's he doing? He wants us to know every imperative flows from the indicative of the gospel. It is the power for our obedience. So we keep that in mind as we come to this passage. Now what does, what is Peter calling us to? As he's talking about, here's how you should live in the world. Here's my calling upon your life. What is he calling us to here? And it's essentially this, to be holy. You sum it all up in a word. We are called as exiles in this world to live holy lives. Now we're going to talk about what does that word even mean. Look again, verse 13 Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober Now in the Greek it actually says Gird up the loins of your mind It's kind of a vivid image, right? It's the picture of in the ancient world Before a warrior would come into battle So it's a context of battle Peter wants you to know You're in a battle, you're going into battle But before a warrior in the ancient world Would go into battle They'd take their robes Because they wore robes and they'd gather them up and they'd tuck them into their belt so that they could run. Preparing themselves. So he says, do that kind of girding for your mind. You've got to be prepared for action. There ain't no frozen chosen here. Okay? He's calling us to act. And to live in a particular way. And what's vital is that you get your mind right as you move into that. Be prepared to actively live in a particular way. Way. Set your hope on the grace to be brought you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Pointing us ahead again to this theme of hope in the book of Peter, this gospel hope that Jesus is going to make all things new, that what we're facing is a temporary reality, and this world is not our home. Verse 14: As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't conform to those desires that belong to your former life. Remember, he's already told us we've been born again. We've been given new life. And yet, the old life, the old man, the old woman, the old person, the old desires, this is the hard thing about the Christian life. It's still in there. Now, that's not who I am anymore. It belongs to the old, but it's still there I still wrestle with it. Who I really am is this new creature in Christ. That's who I really am. But what makes the Christian life so hard is those old desires remain and sometimes, what do we do? We live out of the old reality of who we used to be rather than out of the new of who we are in Christ. So he's saying, don't conform to those desires. Put them to death. And then here's what he says in verse 15. But just as... He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, and he quotes Leviticus for us: "Be holy, because I am holy." So the summary of how we're called to live is holiness. Now that's a big churchy word, so we need to kind of think about what does this mean biblically. What does the word holy mean? You know, probably for many of us, it's kind of a religious word. I. I Probably many of us just think as we think about holiness, well, one, is probably not all that appealing, right? It means that uh, the fear that uh, someone said this, I can't remember whose quote this was, but holiness is the fear that someone somewhere in the world might be having fun. You know, it's kind of this kind of otherworldly, kind of, you know, church lady kind of image in our mind, and I think what we typically think of was, you know, if you're holy, that means you avoid certain things, right, usually that are attached to fun, or you dress in a certain way, or you speak in a certain way, and things like that, but you've got to understand that the concept of holiness is so much bigger, I mean, it it's really saturates the scripture, and the place that you've got to start is the fact that God is holy. We see, we actually sang a song at the very beginning about the holiness of God. And it was, it was based off of Isaiah 6. And you have this scene in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah comes into the heavenly throne room. He comes into the presence of God. He sees the angels worshiping before the throne of God. And do you remember what they were saying? Shouting in a loud voice. And their voices were so powerful. The temple itself was Shaking. You remember what they were saying? They were saying one word over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy. Now, anytime you repeat something three times, you're emphasizing it. If I was to tell you, you know, we had a ball game the other day, and the kids on this football team that we had to play were big, big, big. Right? You get the idea. They were big. By repeating it, they're saying, you are And you know what happens to Isaiah whenever he sees this? Face down on the ground, (laughs) he is immediately struck with his own sinfulness. He is immediately struck with how different he is than God. And you see, that is the essence of holiness. Holiness at its bottom level, most simple level, means to be set apart, to be different. To be unlike anything else. That's what it means to say that God is holy. He is in a league of his own. No one is like him. There is no being like him. And as we think about all of his attributes, they're all really summed up in his holiness. If we think about God's love, you know, we, God is love. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But when we talk about God's love, it's a holy love. That is, it's unlike any other love in the whole world. When we talk about God's power, it is a holy power. It is unlike any other power. In fact, you can't even compare it to anything else. To say God is holy to mean he is utterly unique in all of his perfections, in all of his moral purity, that there is no comparison. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. But we also see in Scripture that people and things actually can become holy. You know, in the Old Testament worship, you had this really special place called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, later become the temple, it was a tent and there were things inside the tabernacle for worship. There were tables and there were altars and they were, they were pieces of furniture. But they, would, they were not ordinary pieces of furniture because they would be consecrated to the Lord. They would be made holy. They would be changed from being a common table to being a holy table because they were set apart for the purposes of God that's what it means to be holy that you are set apart you're unlike other things because you're set apart for a specific purpose and the specific purpose is to honor and glorify God that's what happens to that table in the tabernacle that's what happens to that tent it's unlike any of the other tents because it is a holy tent Because it has been set apart for the holy presence of God. The place where the temple was, it's holy. Because it's set apart for Him. You see, the same was true for Israel. God's people in the Old Testament. They were to be holy. In fact, you see it over and over and over. He's quoting Leviticus here. And everything about their life was to set them apart from the nations. You know, God gave them all kinds of ceremonial laws... You know, things that they were to eat, dietary laws, and ways that they were to act and live and dress and uh, ethically was a big part of their holiness, that they were to be a people devoted to justice. That is, according to the Bible, the care of the vulnerable. All of those things that he gave to them set them apart from the world with the intention that the world would see Israel, see God's people, and be drawn to him. But they were holy people because they were set apart for that specific use. Now, in the New Testament and in the new covenant in Christ, the emphasis on the holiness of God's people does not pass away. It's actually elevated. But what changes about the emphasis is that it moves from externals, how you dress, what you eat, to the internal and to the actual life that embodies Jesus so as we talk about followers of Christ what it means to be holy is that we are like Jesus in our life that we become his disciples that we learn to live our life as Jesus would live our life if Jesus were living our life to use Dallas Willard's description of what it means to be a disciple holiness simply means We are learning to live out the teaching of Jesus. We're learning to be like him. Now, what was the heart of his teaching? Well, in a word, it was love. Right? Love. Loving God. Loving our neighbor. Being a people who are marked by love. Now, you know, in the world, we're like, well, how does that stand out? How's that different? You know, the world's in love with love. We love pizza and we love Music and trips and football and all kinds of stuff. How's loving? We're all loving, right? No, we're talking about a different kind of love. You see, the Jesus kind of love is not measured by how you love people like you, which is very normal in the world. Jesus' love is measured by how you love people who are unlike you. It's how you love even your enemy. And when we start talking about that, it gets really different. Right. It's a holy kind of love. Like we're talking about like, believe it or not, like a Republican loving a Democrat. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Supernatural. You don't see that in the world. Right? We're talking about loving someone even who is doing you harm. Kids, we're talking about actually loving a bully. We're talking about loving the worst. We're talking about loving people who are unlovely. See, that's the Jesus kind of love. You love in that way, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in the world. See, to be holy means that we are marked by a life of mercy and compassion in a world where everybody's climbing to the top. Everybody's stepping on each other to get to the top and elevate themselves and be in the right crowd and look the best, and usually at the expense of other people. And yet, the people of Jesus are to be those who actually... Choose to go to the back of the line. Imagine that. People who are looking to elevate those who are excluded. This is Jesus' love. Living a life of justice. This dogged devotion to the most vulnerable people in society. Biblically speaking, the Hebrew word is mishpat. And that's what it means. It means actually committing your life to the cause of the most weak And that's usually the poor, orphans, widows, and aliens, immigrants. That's the way of Jesus. It's living a life of radical generosity. I'm going to tell you right now, if we live like that, we will stick out like a sore thumb in the world. You know, there's been a lot of sociologists who've done studies on the explosive growth of Christianity in the first century. And they've wrestled with this reality of, like, how did, how did this group of, like, you know, ragtag disciples who had no social standing and status, you know, their leader was crucified, we know resurrected, but nobody else believed that, how did it go To literally covering covering the Roman Empire. And in a matter of years becoming the dominant religion of the world. How did that happen? And they go back and they study this. And you know what their determination was? It was the life of the believers in the first century. And it was specifically how they stood out. How they were different. And there were two key areas. That they stood out the most with the quality of their life. It was the way that they treated their money and the way that they related to sex. Believe it or not, those were the two things in the Roman culture of their day that made them the most radically different. You see, with their money, they were incredibly generous. They, they They were giving their lives away for the sake of the poor. And yet, their sexual ethic was so restricted to Biblical, heterosexual marriage alone. It was radical in the Roman world. Those were the opposite of the Roman world. It was incredibly materialistic. And it was highly sexualized. Does that sound familiar to any other culture you know of? We're actually in it right now. And you know what made them stand out? Their radical generosity. And yet their deep committed sexual ethic. In the context of marriage alone. Many have said they were generous with their lives. But not with their bodies. They shared their table with all. But not their beds. Those are direct quotes from first century opposers to Christianity. They were complaining about it. It was the difference of their life. That created the impact of their life. On the world. Holiness. Now I think we got to ask a question. Are we different? Are we seen as different in the world? Do we stick out? Do our values contrast with that of the world? Do how we, what we live for? I mean, it's easy to tell what somebody lives for, right? What do they give their time to? What do they give their money to? Always an indicator of what we live for. Is what we live for different than the non-believing world? Are our values different? Do we use our time differently? our money differently? Do we treat people differently? Are we different? Probably the best person to ask the question of is the people who are around us. (laughs) They probably have a more accurate view, right? Would your classmates, kids, would your classmates say for some reason they don't join in when we're making fun of the uncle kid? For some reason they don't do that. And it irritates me and I don't like it, but they're different. Would they say that about you? Would your coworkers say, you know, it's weird. She doesn't gossip. You know, when we go to hammering the person, you know, and talking, you know, she doesn't join in. She she tries to turn the conversation somewhere else, or or uh, she tries to defend the person. We don't like that. We that didn't really fit in. Would they say about that about you? Would your kids' coach say, what is it about Sunday with these people? What is it about that day? You know, it's so irritating. They think for some reason being in some place on a Sunday morning is more important than be it at our baseball game or our football game or whatever it is. What is wrong with these people? I mean, don't they know that the athletic success of your children is the most important thing in life? Would they say that about us? Or do we just look the exact same? These are hard questions for me. (laughs) So here's the question. Where do we get the motivation and the power to live holy lives? And that's where Peter goes in the rest of the passage. He's called us to a life of holiness. A life of being different and standing out in the world. But the motivation that he gives us in verses 17 and following are two basic things, okay? What motivates a life of holiness? fear and grace. Now those might be odd to be put together, but let's look at what he's talking about here. Fear and grace, primary motivators. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a God, on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And you see there again, he's repeating this theme of you are foreigners, you're exiles, you're not at home. But he calls us to live here in reverent fear. Now, the fear that he's talking about here is not like a, a terror of being scared of God or wanting to run away with, from God. It is a reverent fear. It is having a sense of the awesomeness and the holiness of God. And it creates a certain kind of fear. In fact, the Bible calls it The fear of the Lord, and it's a huge concept in Scripture. We see it all over the place. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God in the sense that we run away from Him. The fear of the Lord, when we see that in Scripture, what it means is that God is the ultimate reality in your life. That that He is the ultimate reference point. That He is everywhere, and everything that we do is before His eyes. Now, here's the challenge with fear. I think as we're talking about fear of the Lord, I think we're talking about a very foreign kind of concept for us in our culture. Because we live in a secular culture. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before, but it is a secular culture. And here's what that means. It doesn't mean that everyone in a secular culture believes God doesn't exist. Rather, what it means is that He is not present. So in a secular culture, it's okay to say, yeah, I believe in God, you know, and I go to church. You can be a religious person and yet deeply secular. But a secular person believes what really matters, what really has weight, is material things in life. You know, it's, it's things like football teams. Think I'm not secular? Last night, I'm a nervous wreck. You know, the Georgia Bulldogs, are they going to win? Half of you don't know what I'm talking about, and you were so blessed because of that, Okay? Why do I let my life get wrapped up in that? Because I'm secular. When we give all this weight to visible, created things in the world, and and you might say, yeah, I believe in God, but what really has weight is these created material things in my life. And we tend to live as if God is not present. You see, as we grow in the fear of the Lord, you know what we're growing in? We're growing in our understanding that God is everywhere. That everything in life has reference to Him. He created it. He is sustaining it actively in this moment. You're sitting in a chair right now because God is actively keeping the atoms and protons and neutrons all in their place and doing the right thing. The floor beneath your feet is secure because God is sustaining it. Your heart is beating because he is actively causing it to beat. He's not some clockmaker that makes the world and then leaves and is going to come back later. He is actively present and everything we do is before his eyes. And the more that you grow in an awareness of that presence, you are growing in the fear of the Lord. And let me tell you something, it changes your life. It changes what you fear. You fear people? I fear people all the time. I fear the opinion of people constantly. You know, the fear of the Lord and the fear of man are kind of like a seesaw. So when very little fear of the Lord, you got a lot of fear of people. Man, those are the people that really hold the, the balance of my life. But as your fear of the Lord goes up, you know what begins to happen? Your fear of people and every other thing begins to go down. Because he's the ultimate reference. You see in our verse here he says, Since you call on a father, this is verse 17, Who judges each person's work impartially. See, he's tapping into a reality that we are going to stand before God one day. And we're going to give an account of our life. Man, if everybody in the world knew that, How different would this world be? And even believers... This is not what... Believers, we will not be judged for our sin. Christ was judged in our place. But we will stand before God. We will give an account for what we've done in this life. For every word, for every action, for every choice. And the more that we understand that, man, the fear of the Lord goes up and we say, I want to honor Him with my life. So a primary motivation is this reverent fear. But then there's another, I think far more profound motivation, and it's the one of grace. Look at verse 18. He goes right back to our identity in Christ in the gospel. Look at verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What a, man, just stick that in your pipe and smoke it a little bit. Amazing, beautiful, this description of the grace of the gospel. You know, we know the worth of something by what you're willing to give to have it or rescue it. Do You see what he's saying here? That we are so precious to God. That he was willing to part with the most precious thing to him in the world. Not silver or gold. You know, if somebody gives an enormous amount of wealth in this world for something else, we say, wow, that thing has tremendous value. But he says it wasn't with silver or gold that we were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us. Now, to be redeemed is a huge concept in the Bible. To be redeemed is to be purchased out of slavery. In the ancient world, if you fell into a debt, you would be sold into slavery. You would be sold into something you could not get yourself out of and to... So someone could come and redeem you. They could come and purchase your freedom and set you free. And that is the context of how he's describing the gospel here. But the price paid was not silver or gold. It was far too extravagant. It was the precious blood of his son. If God was willing to give the most precious thing in him, to him in the world for our freedom. What does that mean? We mean to Him. You see that logic? Peter wants that to pierce our hearts. That you have been bought. You have been redeemed. The Father so loves you and is committed to you. That He gave the precious blood of His Son. That you might be free. You see, Peter wants to motivate our holy life. By the truth of the gospel. You see, here's the reality. The more that that begins to penetrate our hearts, the more that that gets past the defenses and gets down to the bottom and begins to move us, the depth of God's love for us in Christ, you know what it begins to do? It begins to empower you to be different, to live a life of holiness in this world. So this morning we get to respond by coming to the table. And really, at the communion table, we see these two elements brought side by side. Reverent fear and grace. Love and grace brought together right here side by side. Because this table, this is a holy table. This is a holy sacrament. You know, this is not just going through the motions of something. This is not just drinking some juice and eating some bread. This is holy and we see many places in Scripture that describes that. This is different. This is special. This, this is a place where the living God, the Holy One, comes to meet with His people at communion. So this is, this is different. So there's a, there's a certain sense of reverent fear you come with as you come to the table. We're meeting with the living God. But yet it is a table of overwhelming grace you know that lamb without blemish that was given for us is portrayed here at the table i mean that's taking us back to the passover where there would be the sacrifice of a pure spotless lamb in the place of the sin of the people he would become that that lamb that sacrifice would become a substitute and that blood would be sprinkled on the people and it would cleanse them the sacrifice was taking their place that is what is portrayed at the communion table. As we eat the body of Jesus and we drink the juice, we're drinking of his blood. It's taking us back to the gospel. It's taking us back to the grace of the work of Jesus in our place. So as we come, we come with both fear and boldness. <laughs> You've got to see that. The gospel makes you both incredibly humble and yet incredibly bold. Because the entirety of our sin has been paid for by the work of Christ alone. So as we come to this table, we come with reverent fear. And we come to receive his deep and overwhelming grace.